Okay, Mark chapter number seven is where we're going to be at. And we've been in a series where we're going through and uh, just kind of looking at the different gospel accounts and following the life of Christ to get a, a more clear view of who he was and what he taught and to get a better appreciation for him. And so that's been our desire. And, and I've, I've called this series Refocus just because I want, uh, want Christ to come into focus, want it to be clarified, because honestly, our lives are about the cross. It is about him, and he should be our focus. And so as we've been going through this series, uh, last week what we were looking at was in John chapter number six, uh, Jesus had multitudes that were following him, and they were enthralled by him uh, for many different reasons. There was many th reasons why they were following him. And he had just fed the multitude, and so many of those people were following him just because they had eaten of the bread, they had eaten of the fishes, and he called them out for it. Rather than just being uh, satisfied because there was a large number of people, he wanted them to actually get the purpose behind him being here. He wanted them to actually be following him for him. And so as he was going through this, he pointed out several different reasons why people were following him. And it's some of the same reasons why we see people who claim the name of Christ today, people who are uh, members of religion, that they are going through the motions, that they are subscribing to Christianity, however you want to look at it, but that they're not actually there for Jesus. And we saw that many of them were there for the earthly benefits. As I said, the, the loaves and the fishes, they said, he fed us once, he'll feed us again. What can I get out of Jesus? What am I going to, what's he going to give me? And so that's why people are following him. If I follow Jesus, then my bank account will be full, then my kids will uh, turn out well, then uh, I'll get the promotion at work and my marriage will be fine and all these things. And they think these are benefits that if I just follow Jesus, like some kind of a good luck charm, that these things will turn out fine for me. There were others who were following Jesus, seeking to earn favor. They said, if we just do these things, then God is going to be, uh, he's going to be happy with us. If we just do all of these things, then he's going to be impressed by us. And so a lot of people uh, put on this facade of religion, just thinking that God is going to be, uh, is going to be pleased or impressed because that they go through the motions, because they are religious. We saw there were others who were following Jesus because they did not have enough proof. They were just looking for more evidence from Jesus. They said, okay, maybe the next miracle, maybe the next sermon, maybe something is going to be finally enough where I am willing to come across whatever it is that's keeping me from him. Maybe I'll finally believe if I just have a little bit more proof. And they're skeptical of it. And there are those today that are still kind of staying around religion, but they're not fully convinced yet. They're just looking for whatever's going to push them over the edge. And honestly, a lot of times they are overlooking all of the mountains of proof to still remain in that place of indecision. We saw that there were some that were there due to errors in their understanding. They didn't know exactly who Jesus was. They didn't know why he came. They said, well, he's the son of Mary and Joseph. He's here as a good teacher. He's providing these things. He's doing this. And they completely missed the point of why Jesus was here. And, and uh, really, that is a, a broad category today of people who misunderstand the purpose behind Jesus. They misunderstood what he taught, why he came, but yet they will be associated with him. They'll, they'll throw their lot in with religion, but yet they have never truly committed to him. They have never truly put their faith and trust in him, and they are not serving him or not following him, not part of the multitude for the right reason. 
the last group that we looked at was the disciples, and they were entirely satisfied. Uh, whenever Jesus says, will you go away also? Peter responds by saying, to whom shall we go? Who else has the words of eternal life? He said, we are satisfied with you. We're not here for your blessings, for your benefits. We're not here thinking that we're going to earn God's favor somehow by our religious works. We are here for you. We're here because we believe that thou art the Son of God, that in you is salvation, that you have come from the heavens above to the earth below so that we may know you and that we may follow you and that we may abide forever with you. They said, you are enough. We are satisfied. And that's where I believe all of us should desire to get as Christians is being uh, focused on Jesus, satisfied by him, and put all these other things that, that we load up into religion, put all that aside and just focus on him, be satisfied with him, who he is, why he came. Now today what we're going to be looking at in Mark chapter number 7 occurs right around this same time. We're trying to go through this uh, somewhat chronologically, but it's possible that this event happened just right before Jesus uh, confronted the, the multitude about the bread of life. It may be uh, just a little bit after this, whenever multitudes were starting to come back in. It didn't take very long, even after he sent people away, for people to start filtering back and coming just out of curiosity or uh, seeking miracles or whatnot. But there's still a crowd around Jesus. And amongst that crowd is a, uh, is a group that came from Jerusalem. This was kind of a... Uh, a um, What's the word that I'd use for this? Mm, I don't know. Anyway, a delegation. There's the word I have written there. It was a delegation that was sent from Jerusalem. Okay? And the people at the temple, the 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 top brass, if you will, the priests, the, the Sanhedrin and different ones, had heard about Jesus. They had heard about his ministry, about how all these multitudes were following him, and people were excited about it, and how he was doing miracles, and that he was teaching the people, and they were flocking to Jesus, and they seen it as somewhat of a threat to their power. Not only that, but they were also afraid that if Jesus made too big of a fuss, it would draw the attention of the Romans, and it would upset that kind of uh, uh, a peace that they had brought in there. They kind of had their their way that things operated, and they were satisfied with that, and they didn't want Jesus to upset the status quo. And so they were coming to uh, to look at Jesus, to listen to Jesus, and figure out what he was about. And so as they sat back and were just kind of evaluating, as they were sitting back kind of scrutinizing, uh, we find that they were looking for faults. They were looking for flaws. They came with an agenda, Okay. They were not coming to say, well, maybe he's the Messiah, or entertaining and saying, well, maybe he's a good guy. They said, he's not with us. He doesn't do it our way. We haven't sent him. We don't like him. How do we shut him down? Uh, there's a lot of talk today about cancel culture. Has anyone ever heard of cancel culture? Okay, that's everywhere on the news is because of what they say, what they teach, we've got to shut them down. And so they were coming from Jerusalem trying to cancel Jesus. Okay, And in the process of things, Jesus cancels them. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. And so Mark chapter 7, verse number 1 is where we're at. And it says, Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat with defiled, that is to say, unwashing hands, they found fault. 
For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands off, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not, and many other things there be which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and of pots, brazen vessels and of tables. Then the Pharisees and scribes ask him, Why walk not the disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and of cups and of many other such like things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curseth father and mother, let him die the death. But ye say, If a man say unto his father or mother, It is Corban, that is to say, a gift, by whatsoever thou mayest, mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. And you suffer him no more to do aught for his father or his mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered, and many such things ye do, such like things ye do. And when he had called the people unto him, he said unto them, Hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand, there is nothing from without a man that entering in, into him can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was entered into the house uh, from the people, his disciples asked him concerning the parable, and he saith unto them, Are ye so without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatsoever thing from without entereth into the man, it cannot defile him, because it entereth not into his heart, but into the belly, and goeth out into the draught, purging all meats? And he said that, excuse me, and he said, That which cometh out of the man, that defileth the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you once again. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our opportunity to be together, to, to get into your word and to uh, read it, to study it, to preach it. Lord, we thank you for each person and their, their time and their attention here, the way their desire to learn from your word, their desire to, to uh, fellowship with uh, one another. And we just pray for your blessings on this service. I ask you, Lord, just to give me clarity of mind, give me clarity of speech as I preach the things that we've studied out. Be with each person here that they would glean from it exactly that which they need. And Lord, we thank you for all that you do. In Jesus' name I pray. And amen. So in this passage, what we find is that these Pharisees came down from Jerusalem. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. Every time we run across the Pharisees in the Gospels, it is going to get interesting. Because they were the ones who were lifted up as being the spiritual leaders in Jerusalem. They were the ones who were the spiritual leaders in Israel, but they had taken the things of God, used God as a means to elevate themselves, to give themselves a position, a platform, to have power, to have money, all of these different things at the expense of the people. They had perverted religion to the place that they ended up being the ones to oppose Jesus everywhere. And whenever Jesus was teaching, he was a threat to this empire that they had built up 
And so Jesus was constantly caring for the ones that they had despised and that they had cast out. He was bringing back the teaching of the word of God back to what God intended it to be instead of what they had manipulated and made out of it. And so they weren't happy with it. It's these very guys that ended up uh, trying to uh, crucify Jesus, and ultimately they ended up succeeding in crucifying Jesus. It was these guys. And so in, in Scripture, in the, in the Gospels, this is kind of the, the good versus evil. We put the Pharisees on the evil side, don't we? And we kind of enjoy whenever Jesus sticks it to them, whenever Jesus turns their words on them, whenever he gets the best of them. But we have to realize that at this point in time, the common people looked at these guys thinking they were the heroes. The common people looked at these guys thinking that they were super spiritual, that they were very religious, that they were the mouthpieces of God. And so to see this working out between Christ and false religion, it's interesting to me. But whenever we look at this passage, it says this delegation came from Jerusalem and they were observing Jesus' life. They were observing Jesus' ministry and they were trying to find something wrong with it. And the best that they could come up with was that his disciples didn't wash their hands when they ate. That seems a little goofy to us, doesn't it? But we don't fully understand why they thought this was such a big deal. That's what we're going to get into a little bit here today. But they had this wrong idea that they put so much of an emphasis on outward appearances, on outward rituals and ceremonies, and they completely neglected the inner man. They looked at the outside, not on the inside. And so they had clean hands, but they had dirty hearts. And that's what we find in this group. And this is what Jesus wanted to confront them about. And so as we look at this, seeing these guys as they're looking at Jesus, it says they found fault with him. That's just amazing to me that as these guys came from Jerusalem, they overlooked the fact that he fed probably 15,000 people with five loaves and two fishes. They overlooked the fact that he multiplied the loaves and fishes and said, wait a minute, there was 15,000 people in the wilderness and they didn't go through the ritual cleaning and purification process to wash their hands before they ate. Can you imagine them trying to go through and try to keep the traditions of the elders before they ate the loaves and the fishes? That'd been kind of crazy, wouldn't it? But on top of that, they completely overlooked what Jesus did. They completely overlooked the miracle. And they just seen this one little flaw, this one little fault. They overlooked the fact that Jesus was uh, healing the sick, that he was raising up the lame, that he raised up the dead, that he healed the blind, that he did all of these different things. And they said, your disciples don't wash their hands whenever they eat, according to our traditions and they are defiled. And if you and your disciples are ceremonially defiled, you can't be clean before God, and therefore you can't be of God, you're of the devil. Man, that was a trip, wasn't it? And this was the reasoning in their mind because they were so enamored with their religion that they had completely missed the point of everything that God had given them and the point that everything that God was doing at that time and so as we look at this idea of them not washing their hands before they ate, and this being the big fault that they had, we see it as foolishness. And so the first thing I want to do is I want to dive in a little bit to their folly to understand why this was such a big thing. Okay? So the first thing is their folly. Uh, back in the intertestamental period, 
That is between Malachi and Matthew. There was about 400 years of silence up until the time that the, the angel came to, uh, to Zechariah and said that Elizabeth is going to conceive and have a child and it's going to be John the Baptist. Up until that time, there was silence from heaven for 400 years. There hadn't been a prophet. There hadn't been a prophecy. There hadn't been any kind of message from heaven. There was silence from heaven. 400 years. But it was during that time that the people of Israel had came back out of captivity. They came back out of Babylon. They had rebuilt the walls, Nehemiah. They had rebuilt the temple in Ezra. Ezra was the scribe. He came before the people, and he began to preach the word of God. He began to take the Old Testament scriptures, teach the people the law, and then to make sense of it, the Bible says. So he was explaining to them the law. And he raised up other prophets, other people, not prophets, other scribes that could teach and they could, excuse me, they could teach and they could proclaim the law and the word of God to the people so that they could understand it. Things were going good, right? We can all agree that was a good thing for them to do. The people needed to understand and this group of Pharisees rose out of that. They had a good beginning. They said, we came out of Babylon, which we were in captivity to, because we had forgotten God, we had forgotten his word, we had abandoned all of that, so we need to see to it that we have a revival here of the truths of God's word, that we get back to the basics, and that the people know and understand God's word, that they follow his law, and so we're going to be instructing them in these things. But in their zeal to see the people purified and living by the laws of God, they started going beyond the word of God. And this is what we get into here. They started going beyond the word of God and they said, okay, if it is good for them to keep these rules, let's, let's go ahead and expand on these rules. They started kind of putting extra protections. They started putting building fences around the laws. So it wasn't just that they wouldn't break the laws. They wouldn't get anywhere near them. And they proclaimed those as if they had been laws. Okay? And it was during this time that the, uh, uh, the Mishnah came about. This was the Jewish scriptures that was supposed to be the oral traditions, the oral records that they claimed was handed down from the time of Moses. All of these oral traditions was their explanations of the laws. It was these expansions of the law that they tried to say was just as authoritative or more authoritative than Scripture. Is everybody still following me? Okay, so they said that it was more authoritative than Scripture. And so the Pharisees started saying, we need to be a pure people. We need to be a holy people. In order for us to do that, we need to keep all of these traditions and all of these laws and all these commands. So to give examples, I'll give some of the ones that I've given in the past. The Bible says to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. And so in their traditions, they had a multitude of ways that people must abide by in order to keep that command. It wasn't just, okay, the Lord said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, and I'm going to do that to the best of my ability and my love for God and my desire to follow him. It was, now it's been defined. They have... Uh, regulations for everything and every possible question that could arise so that you have to memorize all these regulations. They had it down to how far you could travel on the Sabbath day, down to the, basically down to the meter. You couldn't go beyond this distance 
on the Sabbath day or you would be breaking the Sabbath. You couldn't engage in this activity. You couldn't do this type of work. Uh, they called out Jesus and his disciples because they were picking grain on the Sabbath and they were eating it as they went. They picked it. They ate it. They picked it. They ate it. They said, oh, you're harvesting. Okay, so this was the way that it went about. Not only that, but with what we're looking at in this passage of ceremonial washing and cleansing, it says unless they washed their hands off and they didn't eat. So they had a prescribed way that the Jews had to wash their hands. It wasn't washing it for sanitation's sake. It wasn't, you know, doing the, the, the 20 seconds, sing happy birthday while you lather up with soap and wash it off. That wasn't what they were doing. But instead, they have regulations of how much water to use, the position of your hands, the order that you would do things. You would start off with your hands upright in such a way, and they had a measure of water you would pour over your hands. You would allow it to run down to your wrists, not above, not below, and then you had to invert your hands. Then you would pour a certain amount of water over your hands again, and you would allow it to run down until it drips from your fingertips. If it doesn't drip, you didn't do it right. Okay? And then you have to rub your right hand with your left and your left hand with your right and then pour water over it. And it was this whole thing that they would do in order to feel as if they were ceremonially clean. Okay? What does it mean to be ceremonially clean? God had given them uh, laws in the Old Testament, the Mosaic laws, that talked about ceremonial cleanliness. If they were defiled, if they were ceremonially unclean, they couldn't approach unto God in the temple. And God was trying to teach them something. He was trying to teach them that he was holy and that they were sinners and that there was a cleansing that was necessary for them to approach God. He used this ceremonially cleansing, this washing of different things to teach them this as an outward sign, but the application was an inward one. He wasn't saying that you can't come to me unless you wash your feet. You can't come to me unless you wash your hands in this way. You can't come to me unless you wash your heart. He was preparing them. He was setting this up for Christ, the one that would ultimately cleanse them. This was the point of what Jesus was doing. But in their foolishness, in their folly, they saw only the outward motions. And so they said, if we have to wash our hands before we approach the temple— if we have to go through these different things and cleanse these uh, pots and pans and different things before we are acceptable unto God, then let's take this up a few notches. Let's, if this makes us clean, then this is going to make us really clean. If this pleases God, this is really going to please God. And they ratchet it up about 10 notches. And this is what they end up doing. And so this idea of this cleansing, rather than it just them needing to learn, you need to be cleansed to be acceptable with God, They said the cleansing is what makes us acceptable to God. The rituals is what the key is. The more rituals, the more things that we go through, the more traditions we have, the more righteous we are and the more God loves us. That was their thinking. And so for centuries, the Jews had went through this teaching of we have to go through all of these rituals to be acceptable before God, to be clean by God's standard. The longer that it went, the more uh, elaborate it got, the more difficult it became to keep it. Could you imagine having to wash your hands in such a manner in between every course? Every time that you do something, you have to go through this whole washing process, how laborious that would be. 
On top of that, another reason for this washing that they had is that they saw the Gentiles as being defiled. They saw them as being wicked and any kind of interaction they had with the Gentiles, they needed to change their clothes. They needed to wash their hands. They need to wash, They need to take a bath just after being in the market because they may have came across someone who was unclean. Okay? And so they had all of this in their mind, all of these things working out, and it was foolishness because God had an original purpose, original intention, and it had long since gotten buried. It had long since been forgotten about in favor of all of these rules and all these regulations that they were laying on. And so anyway, what started out good, the Pharisees wanting people to be holy, to be separate to God, to keep the law, ended up being in this huge religious system. They say that the oral traditions, once recorded and expanded, would have been the equivalent to a set of encyclopedias. For those of you who are old enough to remember actual book encyclopedias, this was before Google, okay? So large volumes of books, and this was all the things that they had to keep, and it was foolishness. So the Jews were constantly keeping these things, and it says even the, the washing of cups and plates and tables, the word washing there is to baptize, to immerse. And so could you imagine being so involved in this that you're even baptizing your table? <laughs> I mean, that's really taking it up there. And so this is what they were doing. And so as they brought up this issue to Jesus, they said, we find fault. You are impure. You're unclean. You can't approach to God because you didn't keep the traditions. You didn't go through the rituals. You didn't go through the ceremonies. God's not happy with you. There's no way you can represent God because you didn't do all of these things. Therefore, we invalidate your entire ministry based on our traditions. They took it so far to where their traditions were invalidating the law. This is what Jesus brings out. In verse number 10, he says, Moses said, honor thy father and thy mother, and whoso curses his father or mother, let him die the death. And so you go back to the law, you look, and it says, uh, uh, what, fifth commandment, I believe it is. Honor thy father and mother. This is the first commandment with promise that your days may be long upon the earth. Simple enough, right? Yeah. So he says, you honor your father and your mother, you have a long life. You continue in the law. It says you curse your father and mother that the son who does that was to be stoned. They die. So the law was extremely simple. Honor your father and mother, long life. Dishonor your father and mother, short life. Very short life. Okay. But they found out a way, almost like a lawyer, okay? They found a loophole because in the law, it also talked about keeping your vows and vows unto God. And so to seem religious, to seem spiritual, they made a provision that was called Corbin. They said, if you don't want to take care of your parents in an old age, if you don't want to honor them and show respect to them and do these things that are required of you, then all you have to do is make a vow to dedicate all of your possessions to God. And whenever your parents come saying, hey, we're starving to death over here and dad's not able to work anymore. Could you come and help a little bit? Sorry about your luck. I gave it all to God. And it wasn't that they actually had to give it to the temple at that time. They could still use it. They could still go through all these things, but it was a loophole. It was an excuse 
saying, I've got to use all of these things, steward them all for God's glory because I've dedicated to him, so I can't help out mom and dad anymore. And so they were able to treat people horribly in the name of God. Does that sound familiar today? You ever see anyone use the name of God and use the principles of God's word to justify being a jerk? It happens today, doesn't it? And so this is what they were doing at this time. They were saying, hey, look how spiritual we are. We wash our hands. We even baptized our table. And we give all of our possessions to God. And we let our parents starve to death because we're just that dedicated to God. And they were proud of that. They were fools. Right? And this is what it had become because it was all based on how things appeared. It was all based on piling up all of these spiritual, all of these ceremonial, all of these re, uh, religious rituals that only made them feel good about themselves, but it had nothing to do with honoring or pleasing God. As they were doing this, it became a measurement of worth, a source of pride. It became a way of condemning other people because one person could say, look at how well I have kept all of these things. Look at how ceremonially and religiously clean I am. Look at how much detail I go into, how much effort I put into all of these things. It's because I am such a godly person. But you, you don't put all that effort into it, so I'm more godly than you are. It gives us a way to measure one another. Don't we like measuring things? Being able to compare and contrast and then condemn other people whenever they don't live up to all of these rituals, all these traditions, all these things that we have added to the Word of God and think that they should do the same thing. I know we got on this a little bit during Sunday school in the first half, but it shows us our tendency to go into these foolish ways of thinking and doing the most ungodly things and thinking that we're okay. The way that it would have went with them, whenever they were keeping the law strictly and keeping the tradition strictly, they would say, I'm a godly person. You don't do it as well as me, so you're not as godly. They don't do it as all, so they're wicked, and God hates them. And so if God hates them, it's okay for me to hate them. And um, ultimately, they hated Jesus, and they said, it's okay for me to kill Jesus because God hates him. Isn't that the way that it ended up going? I think I've made my point. It, it was foolishness that they were doing, adding all these extra biblical things. And whenever the people were trying to adhere to these volumes of rules and regulations, there was a fear that if they skipped a step, if they did it wrong, if they pronounced the wrong word over something, that God would not accept them. But see, the thing is, it wasn't of God. None of it was of God. It was just their traditions that they put in. And so anyway, we saw their folly. Now we look at the fear that it brought. Imagine what being under that system, what kind of an effect that it would have on your mind, on your heart, on your relationship with God. If you were constantly evaluating yourself, making sure you've dotted your I's, you've crossed your T's, if you're living a life that is a, a spiritual high-wire high act, like a tightrope act, that would be miserable, wouldn't it? You were constantly fearing because of this system, you were constantly having to monitor every word, every step, everything, every action, and it was always 
an emphasis always uh, looking on the outward actions, the outward appearances, and never knowing if you're going to make a misstep, never knowing if you're going to violate one of a million things and not even realize you did it. And so it brought a fear of God to them and not the fear of God that's the beginning of wisdom. It brought a fear of God saying God is such a stickler for the book. God is so much into all this rule keeping that if I make a misstep, he's going to be mad at me. And we started picturing God almost as being Zeus sitting on top of Mount Olympus throwing lightning bolts. I use that illustration quite often. And so you start looking at it in that way and you have this fear that uh, I didn't do that right or what if I got this wrong or what if I said this wrong or whatever happens and now God's mad at me whenever God wasn't even there to begin with. It brought about a fear of man because obviously there were people that were constantly looking to see how well you were keeping the rules. You had the Pharisees that were up there looking out and they were looking over at Fergus and saying, how did Fergus wash his hands? Did he point them down the right way? Did he use too much water? Did he use enough? Uh, how did he say this, uh, this prayer? Did he use the right words? Did he do it at the right time? Did he... And we're keeping record on Fergus over here. And, uh, he messed up there and there and there and there's something wrong with Fergus. Right? And so there was a fear of men and it caused people to perform. Jesus calls them hypocrites. A hypocrite, today we, we, we look at it as being, you know, uh, such a horrible thing that someone is a hypocrite. But the original meaning of that meant someone who was playing a part, an actor. That was someone who was saying the words but didn't mean them. Right? And so this is what he was saying here whenever he called them a hypocrite. says that you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. You may be going through all the actions. You may be doing all of the things, but you don't actually mean it. And so the people were performing. They were going through because this is what was expected of them. People are watching. God will get mad. And so I've just got to keep all of these things. It calls people to compare. As I said there just a moment ago, we're looking at one another. And, well, I'm doing a little bit better than Bruno. And Peter, he's, eh, I think I'm doing better than him. And, well, Kev, he's, I, I want to do better than him eventually. Right? And we're starting to compare and we're starting to contrast. And I'm a pretty good Christian because, hey, I'm better than most of you guys in here. I've seen how you wash your hands. <laughs> right? And so it starts this comparing and this contrasting, and that leads to condemnation. And all of this is focusing on outward appearances, on other people's opinions, and all of this mess, and God has completely left the picture. Another element of fear in this is that the leaders were fearful as well. They like to think that they were in control. They like to think that they knew what was going on and that they were the cream of the crop and that God was happy with them. But they were operating out of fear because they feared that people would go astray without the rules. They said, we can't trust God. We can't trust God's word. We need to erect all these other things to keep these stupid people on track. That was their idea. That was their way of thinking because God wasn't enough of a reason. God needed their help, right? They didn't trust God to work in the people. They thought that they knew better. They were also afraid of losing power, and this is why they were confronting Jesus at this time, because Jesus was coming and bringing them back to the truths of God's word. He was getting to the heart of the matter. 
And he said, if Jesus keeps this up and he rolls all of our traditions and gets rid of this uh, huge encyclopedia almost of laws and traditions that we have and brings it back to them loving and serving and seeking God, then we have been made unnecessary. We're going to lose our jobs. We're going to lose this cushy position that we have because everyone is depending on us to tell them what they have to do. There was fear all the way around in this. So we saw, excuse me, we saw their folly, we saw their fear, but there was something that they forgot. What was it that Jesus brings out whenever he confronts them? He uses the same thing on these guys that he did whenever he confronted Satan in the wilderness. He goes back to what is written in Scripture. He tells them that, well said, Isaiah, of you. He goes back to the book of Isaiah. He goes back to the prophets. And Isaiah was rebuking the children of Israel because the children of Israel were delighting in going through all of the rituals, but they didn't even think about God. They did it because this is what we do. Come to church on Sunday. We, we sit. We act like we're paying attention. We stand up. We sing the songs. We sit down. We, we listen again. And then we go home and on with life, right? We go through the motions. We go through the rituals. And Isaiah was calling out the people saying, you are going through all of the motions, but your heart is not with God. In the beginning of Isaiah, God calls out the people of Israel and says, I'm not concerned about your sacrifices. I'm not concerned about your solemn feasts and your assemblies and your holy, holy days and your festivals and all these things because you are just doing it out of routine, out of ritual, out of tradition. You are not doing it to serve God. He said their sacrifices have become a stench in his nostrils because their heart wasn't attached to it because God wants our heart first and foremost. And so these people forgot the word of God. They forgot the scriptures that God had taught them. Even whenever Jesus is coming back to what I referenced there a minute ago with Moses, honor thy father and thy mother. And whenever he is bringing them back to the truth of the law, it was simple. It was easy. It was something, I don't want to say keeping the law was easy, but it was easy for them to understand. God didn't need anyone to add extra things to it. God didn't need man to explain what he was doing. God gave them what he wanted, and he gave them what they needed to understand it. And they had forgotten about this. It added so many things. They forgot the power of God's word. They forgot the purpose of God's word. They forgot the simplicity of God's word. And so they forgot that God knew what he was doing. They forgot that he meant what he said. They forgot that God didn't need their help. You look back all the way through the Old Testament and what God was able to do, not because of man, but in spite of them. And they forgot this. See, God was wanting them to trust him, to follow him, to seek after him. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? He also says his commandments are not grievous. And then what have we done? We come in behind it, add to his commandments. We make a religious structure. We make all these different things. And it ends up, once again, we're rule keeping. We're comparing. We're contrasting. We're doing all these other things. We need to get back to what his word says. We have forgotten his scriptures. And we have substituted it for our traditions. We've substituted it for the way that we think that Christianity is supposed to go, for the things that we think is important. And we haven't ever consulted him and said, God, what do you think about this? 
God, what do you say about this? What are you saying that we are supposed to be doing today? They forgot all about that because they had a way of doing things. They had a religion. They had a system. And so they had to get back to the Word of God. The final thing that I want to look at here, so that we get away from all this extra-biblical craziness. We're drawn to this, right? We like to start adding these things. We, we like to start uh, putting more stuff onto God's Word. We like to try to start making everyone else do it the same way as we do. But we need to make sure that we're not bringing in all of these foolish things like the Pharisees were. That we're not operating out of fear like the Jews were. That we're not forgetting about the truth of God's Word like all of them were. What we need to do is we need to find what they found. Whenever they came to Jesus here at the end of this, they wanted further explanation. And Jesus tells them, and I'll paraphrase this, they actually, the disciples get concerned about this and said, do you not know that you offended the Pharisees? And Jesus says, don't care. Okay? But they ask him, they say, we want you to explain this parable about... Uh, about it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of him. And Jesus tells them that the filth that they're washing off of their cups and their plates, that whenever they're washing their hands, that never comes anywhere near their heart. It goes in their stomach and it goes out in the waste. But he says what actually defiles a man is what comes out of his heart. And we looked at this on Wednesday night here a few weeks ago about guarding our hearts. But he says it's what comes out of a man that defiles him. The heart is the well that everything springs out of. Whenever you start uh, wondering what a man is made of, about what a man is like, if you sit around long enough and listen to him, the tongue is the bucket that will draw out of the well and will show you what's in the well. Okay? And so Jesus tells them here very plainly that God is not seeking for them to have a bunch of empty, meaningless rituals and try to clean up the outside to appear spiritual on the outside that they don't need clean hands they need clean hearts they need to have their hearts purified they need to have their hearts cleansed and that is why jesus came the bible tells us in jeremiah that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked david prays in psalm 51 10 create in me a clean heart and that is what we need that's what we need to, to find is the importance of God's work in the inner man rather than preoccupying ourselves with a bunch of outward religiosity. We need to figure out that God will work from the inside out rather than us trying to force it from the outside in. Okay? The Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And so it's what the heart contains, it's what the heart does, it's what the heart is that determines everything else. And God wants to do a work in our hearts. The Bible says, for we believe in our heart, right? And not only that, there's so many different things. If you follow this idea throughout scripture about everything that comes forth from the heart, those things can't come out if God doesn't do a work within. God's not going to do a work within if we're so preoccupied with keeping up with all these other traditions and expectations and rules and everything else. First thing we need to do, we need to seek after God. So our final thought in this, this idea of 
dirty hands, or not, not dirty, clean hands and a dirty heart. It's if we get rid of all of the foolishness. If we come past the fear, the Bible says perfect love casts out fear, right? If God has our hearts, if we have been born again, if we have been saved by his blood, if we have been bought by him and made anew in him, then God can start working on the inside and do a work that is going to show on the outside. If you love God, as I said already, you'll obey his commandments. If you love God, that's the starting point. That's the place we need to begin. Not what does man think of it. Not, okay, how can I clean myself up? How can I purify myself? What it starts out with is, for God so loved me. And the Bible tells us that we love him because he first loved us. And so I love God. He saved me. He's made exceeding great and precious promises for me. I love God. And I love his word. And I look in his word. And I start growing through his word. And because of his spirit that lives within me, because of his word that I am putting within me, God is cleansing my heart. He is changing my life, my action, my trajectory. Everything changes whenever I first love him. And then whenever I love his word, I apply it to my life. And everything else falls in line. And if you are seeking any other way to cleanse yourself, if you are trying to cleanse the outside, you can, see, here's the thing. You can go to every church service. You can read your Bible through every month, okay? You can pray eloquent prayers. You can post all of the inspiring quotes on Facebook or Instagram or wherever you're at. You can go through all of these different things and appear outward as holy, and still be just as filthy and nasty and defiled in the inner man. You can do that. But God is concerned about the inner man. God is concerned about our hearts. And honestly, we're the only ones that can see that. And so the challenge that Jesus is giving to them and to us today is for us to examine our hearts. What is it that is inside of you? I don't care how many chapters you read. I don't care how many church servers you go to. What's going on in your heart? And you can fool a lot of people. You can't fool God. Right? And so you start evaluating and saying, what kind of things are coming out of my heart? And then that's whenever we seek for God to cleanse it. That's whenever we start looking into God's word and allowing it to purify us. And then as that happens, then the outside will fall into place. Then you'll be doing the things for the right reasons, for the right purpose. And so even though these people appeared outwardly religious, outwardly holy, God knew the truth. He knew that they were defiled, and he challenged them at the heart level. First, purify the heart. Allow God to cleanse you, and then we'll worry about the outside. And so our final thought in all of this is the very beginning point you can't be cleansed, cleansed on the inside unless you have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. You can't be cleansed unless Jesus Christ has cleansed you of your sins and your unrighteousness. You can't be cleansed unless you have seen yourself as defiled and as dirty and as unacceptable before God. 
and you came to Jesus and said, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I am unclean, but I believe and I trust that you died on the cross to pay my penalty. Please forgive my sins and save my soul. That is the initial cleansing. That is where it all begins. And if you'll trust in Christ as your Savior, you can begin walking with him. And day by day, the love of Christ will constrain you. Day by day, you can look into God's word and allow it to begin washing you with the water of his word. And you can throw aside all of the fear of man, all of the rubbish of religion, all of this different foolishness that mankind says that you have to do, and tune into God and to his word and say, God, what do you want from me? God, what do you want from me? Then we're on the right track. God doesn't want clean hands and a dirty heart. He doesn't want you to be a hypocrite. He doesn't want you to look right on the outside if the inside is not right. God wants to do a work from the inside out. Let's go in prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your many blessings. Lord, we do thank you so much for this time that we've had uh, in your house and in your word. And Lord, I just, I thank you, Lord, that you didn't come to give us a religion. You didn't come to give us a systematic set of rules that we had to keep, that it's not about this comparison and contrasting and all of these things. It's not about uh, trying to clean up the outward man and go through all of these rites and rituals and ceremonies and things. Lord, it's about you coming into our heart and cleansing us from the inside. Help us, Lord, to uh, to find this thing that we've lost. Help us to get back to the truths of your word. Help us, Lord, to seek that through your Holy Spirit and through your word that you can create in us a clean heart, that you can make us a new person, that you can transform our hearts and our lives into something that is beautiful, something that is pleasing to you and acceptable to you. We thank you for all that you're doing, all you're going to do. ask you to do the needed work in the hearts and lives of each person here today. Once again, we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, and amen. amen.